Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. All right, so a couple of months after the Cuban Revolution, Fidel Castro takes a trip to Montreal and he connects with this anxious, sloppy Belgian guy, Georges, who Castro inspires to launch the greatest campaign of political violence in modern Canadian history. You heard that correct. Fidel Castro, after overthrowing Batista, went on a trip to Montreal and he hooked up with the stocky Belgian and that led to bombing after bombing, then some shootings, then some bombings, and all of it leading up to Pierre Trudeau declaring martial law and sending in the tanks rolling through the streets of Montreal. Now, I just learned about the sweaty Belgian and Castro the other week because I read dirty comic books when I was a teenager. And I promise you that that will make sense before this episode is through. What I can tell you for now is that Montreal's Drawn and Quarterly is among the most respected publishers of comic books in the world. They publish comic book literature. They specialize in books about real things, nonfiction comics. Their founder, publisher Chris Oliveros, he has brought to the world books from authors like Robert Crumb, 
Julie Doucette, Chris Ware, Kate Beaton, Chester Brown, and Dan Klaus. But eight years ago, Chris Oliveris left his job as publisher at D&Q so that he could write and draw his own comic, his first comic in, in almost 30 years. It's called, Are You Willing to Die for the Cause? It's a work of journalism that tells the largely forgotten story of the real origins of the FLQ, the militant, violent Quebec separatist group that changed our country's history forever. This is a very different kind of comic book than Yummy Fur or Dirty Plot or Peep Show. Those were the brilliant, weird, and very sexual material that Drawn and Quarterly was putting out back when I was a teenage comics nerd in the 90s. On a personal fanboy kind of a note, it's just a real treat for me to meet and talk with Chris Oliveros. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Madeline Brewster, Alex Braden, Scott Nystrom, Emma Mattiachi, Corey Price, Allison Metz, Martin Scherer, and Rajdeep. I'm Rajdeep Kandola, a family physician living in Calgary, Alberta, and I support Canada Land because of great guests like Jaskaran Singh Sandhu, who's appeared on Canada Land Shortcuts and The Backbench. My name is Chris Oliveros. Most of my adult life, I've been a comic book publisher. I was the founder of John and Quarterly, and I was a publisher for 25 years until I stepped down. And... Uh, over the past few years, I've been working on the other side, working on this one book that I finally was able to finish on the, uh, the history of the early years at the FLQ. Chris, you've completely upset my understanding of this bit of Canadian history, which is like maybe the most memorable piece of Canadian history that one learns in high school. But I had always pictured the FLQ crisis as this uh, really a, a group of French-Canadian separatists who turned to terrorism and violence. And I didn't know that the guys who first introduced violence into this weren't even Quebecois. Who were these guys and, like, what's their story? You know, when I started working on this, there were so many things that I was surprised about. With the FLQ, there were a few different groups. It wasn't, I mean, the most famous incarnation was um, what happened in the October crisis in 1970 with the kidnappings. But that was seven years into the FLQ. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. So, for example, the first wave was um, founded by a guy from Belgium named Georges Shooters. And uh, he was here for a few years. He came here as an adult. He was a, like a protege of Fidel Castro. They met here in Montreal Right after the Cuban Revolution, Castro invited him to Havana. So shooters went to Havana several times. They met in Montreal? Castro went to Montreal? Yeah, so this is a crazy thing. So Castro was sort of seen like as a hero. Even Americans loved him. It's hard, it's hard to believe now, but this is before the Cuban Missile Crisis. So Castro visited New York, and there's photos online of, of crowds, you know, cheering, and he's waving at the crowds. He visited Washington, D.C., and the third place he stopped at was Montreal. And so here in Montreal, he spoke at the Queen Elizabeth Hotel downtown and uh, where he met uh, George Shooters, the future founder of the FLQ. That's wild. 
That's uh, <laughs> that in itself is like you know you hear these stories of like Ho Chi Minh washing dishes in Paris and like you know just these strange convergences of history and people out of, out of the context that we put them in mentally. But uh, the Belgian, he was an early FLQ organizer, I guess. Yeah, so Georges Schuter is basically the key founder of the FLQ. He was the main guy. He was in his 30s by then. And then he basically recruited other people who were mostly like 18, 19, 20 years old. So he was like a dozen years older than all these other people. And again, there's just, every time you sort of dig into this, there's more details that are just, uh, I mean, I was flabbergasted. I mean, how he started this in his Montreal apartment in a um, working class neighborhood in Montreal, Cote neige mm-hmm. with his wife. They had a baby and uh, a young girl as well. And how all this was done and started in that Cote neige apartment. So like he would be mixing Molotov cocktails in their kitchen And then he sort of graduated from Molotov cocktails to real bombs. He would be storing boxes of dynamite. This is like where where, like the baby would be right there, you know, right there in the kitchen. And the toddler would be there too. And all this was going on. This is where like the medium becomes relevant doing this in comics because, Uh you know, we, we, we kind of create cartoons in our head or simplified images when we learn history. And, you know, I'd always just imagined like, large groups of angry young militant men who were alienated and and, and plotting these things. And what you draw are tiny groups of like these tiny cells. And it's not just one foreigner, but Francois Schirm. Am I saying that right? Francois Schirm? I've heard Schirm, Francois Schirm. And who was he? So Francois Schirm was a, um, also a recently arrived immigrant, uh, in this case from Hungary, so here you have a, an immigrant who had been here for maybe about five years, and he was also in his 30s. So another guy in his 30s operating with people who are, in some cases, still teenagers. That's the other really alarming thing and that upsets my conception is that rather than like a grassroots movement of young people like getting militant and getting radicalized, mm-hmm. it's these manipulators who are like really grooming, like, you know, as you depict it. They're like recruiting it like Ben's Deli (laughs) and giving people a form uh, from which you take the title of the book where there's a a box to check, are you willing to die for the cause? And one of these kids checks it not knowing what the cause even is. And these these kind of miserable organizers who are bringing in these violent ideas are like, you know – four or five young people they're able to convince. It's a completely different movement than what I had in my head. Yeah, that's another remarkable thing is that they, they, these were small groups, like right through to the end. I mean, at the very end, the Canadian government thought that this was, you know, there were potentially thousands, but really there were like, even at its height, you were, we're talking about a, a couple of dozen people. So that when you go back to the 1960s FLQ, you often would have the core groups would be made up of um, seven, eight, nine, ten people, a few other people aiding them. So if you really stretch it, you know, you might be talking about 20 people. But again, it would always be that. It would be like a very, very small group of people actually doing these things. There's this really interesting tension as you tell this history between just how piddly these actions were 
you kind of take this wide lens where you're seeing these like three little figures and it's it's drawn in a very charming style, but it doesn't look unlike a, a children's book. And they're like tossing a Molotov cocktail. And I'm, I, I used to live um, on Blurry uh, in the Southern building where they used to print the Montreal Star. And up the street from the Southern building, which is now condos, but it used to be this big kind of semi-abandoned uh, industrial building was the Black Watch. And I'd pass it every day. Right. And then you've got this depiction of them tossing, I don't know what, like, was it like a stick of dynamite or a Molotov cocktail on the sidewalk in front right. of the Black Watch, right. the, uh, the, this military uh, armament, this, the, the Royal Highland Regiment? Yes. So they just seem like these, like, kind of uh, mischief makers at first, and the drawings are like, you know, they're hapless, they're disorganized. The kids that are being recruited don't even know what they're getting involved in. And for a moment, I feel like it's almost like you're making fun of, like, or there's a whimsy to like, as if these are radicals. And then we get to like murder. Right, right. I mean, you just mentioned that you lived uh, towards the bottom of uh, Blurry Street. Well, like right around that, a, a block away from that, from the, the, the Southern building, was where this gun store robbery happened. Because in that, that, in that period, in the 1960s, um, there was a gun store on that block. And that leads back to Francois Chiram because his idea was to start a guerrilla army training camp so that he can basically <laughs> train an army to overthrow the Canadian government. So, of course, he wanted to try to recruit, ideally, you know, at least a thousand soldiers. He ended up only recruiting 12, literally a dozen. <laughs> And the other problem is they did, not only did they not have food for their camp, but they didn't have weapons to train. I mean, they had, you know, a few rifles and things like that. So one of his brilliant ideas was to rob a gun store uh, because that's, of course, that they could have a ton of weapons uh, with that. So Yeah, that's, that's where they keep the guns. Yes, that's so. where they keep <laughs> There's a problem, though. Because they got a lot of guns in a gun store. Right. So they were going to fill up their trunk for this guerrilla army training camp. But of course, as you might expect, and they had, you know, with teenagers helping them too, who had no training whatsoever, there's a lot of ways that can go wrong. And that's essentially what happened. It's like the gang who couldn't shoot straight. It's like a comedy, like a farce of these, uh, you know, like Woody Allen's bananas or something. <laughs> and yet we do get to these occasions where, a uh, security guard trying to disarm a bomb is killed. Yes. Uh, a, a secretary is killed. Some of these young men get killed. The third FLQ leader that you profile, Valier, who, of course, I knew that name from, you know, White N-Words of America. Right. It's like the sem seminal text, but I didn't know the actual history of the guy. Yeah, and that's also a fascinating story. I mean, there's, there's basically three chapters in this book. Each chapter is focusing on a different wave of the FLQ because people might think of the FLQ as being like one entity, but they were actually all, like always different entities and they often didn't even know each other, right? Because one would... Uh, get caught and thrown in jail. Then a year later, another one would form and then get, get caught and thrown in jail. And then Valier was a third one. And again, you know, it's funny because a lot of people have heard his name lately because of the, the controversy. But that guy's life was completely fascinating. And he was involved in so many different things, one of which was like co-founding the third wave of the FLQ. And then the other thing I I didn't realize was that I knew he was involved with the FLQ, but I didn't realize that he spent an entire year fighting for labor rights, essentially. Like, he, he went to this one factory, this shoe factory in Montreal, 
trying to support the workers in their, they were being horribly mistreated, they got terrible pay and so on. He was really trying to, to help them. And when he was getting nowhere, he actually finally decided to start using bombs. And that's where, like, again, predictably, things took a horrible turn. This episode is brought to you by Rotman Executive Programs. Environmental, social, and governance issues, ESG, that is what defines our economic landscape these days. Whether we are talking about land back, diversity and inclusion, or climate change, you need to stay ahead while Rotman's ESG designation delivers hands-on learning while preparing you for the designation exam. You'll learn how to unlock innovation opportunities, mitigate risk, and ensure long-term success. ESG is about the challenges we face today and tomorrow. This is valuable on your CV. This is valuable for your career because earning your designation proves to employers and clients that you know how to build ESG considerations into sound business strategies. Here's how you check it out. Visit uofte.me slash ESG. That's uofte.me slash ESG to learn more. What brought you to this? I mean, comics are an interesting medium in that, you know, you can read a a great graphic novel in an afternoon and it it probably took like eight years (laughs) to to create. You know, we make a podcast a week over here. (laughs) It's a very different approach to storytelling. You have to really want to tell a story, to tell a story in in the comic format. And you took like a multi-decade hiatus from comic making. In the actual book, you've got this device, uh, this narrative device that you stumbled upon these sort of forgotten transcripts from the CBC that tell a forgotten history. But that that you reveal later on, not to, you know, spoiler alert, is uh, is just a narrative device. Right. If not that, then was there original research involved? Was there like just stuff that just had fallen out of public view? The same surprise I have reading this, it seems like there was some moment where you were surprised to learn that the actual history is different than, than what you previously thought. So what was that moment? Well, you know, I actually first came across this topic in in high school, in our Canadian history class. We actually did see a film, which is sort of like the the first major film about the FLQ, this film, NFP film by Robin Spry. And I was blown away. I mean, I was what it would have been about 15 years old. I'm not saying I decided to do a graphic novel then, but it, it, it definitely the topic like stuck in my in my head for years and years until finally... Maybe 15 years ago, I thought, oh, this would be a great subject for a graphic novel. And then I realized there's no way I'm going to be able to do this while working full time at Drown and Quarterly. I'm going to be like 80 years old before I can, you know, finish this. And so finally, I thought I realized, you know, the only way I can possibly do this is if I if I step down. I mean, I just and just try to devote myself full time to this. And when I started the research I actually originally was going to do a book on the October crisis, and I thought, okay, I'm going to do a prologue on what happened before then, maybe 10, 20 pages at most. So, of course, I started reading on that just to make sure I covered everything. And then I was, again, just flabbergasted by what I discovered, because as I started reading about that, and again, there's not many books written about it, and there's a lot more books in French. So, like, a lot of the research was in French. But a lot of newspapers from the period, there's like great sources from the period in newspaper reporting, but again, very, very little since then. 
This is basically all based on that original research, like mostly from the period. There's this like sense of just miniaturization that all these things that I thought were these grand and, and were these grand motivating forces in Canadian history are depicted in this like kind of poly pocket scale uh, that th these cells are so small and these guys are such silly guys. And it left me with this impression of like, really? These guys moved history? Like what a radical overreaction. And, you know, to return to the high school version of these events is, you know, the Pierre Trudeau saying, just watch me. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I learned through your book that actually Pierre Trudeau once hired Valier as uh, yes. <laughs> that uh, to be the, to take over his job as a, an editor of like, what, a student publication or something? like. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, there, like every time you, you just start to dip into this history, there's, there's going to be so many twists and turns and, and uh, all these weird connections you never could possibly have thought possible. Like the fact that uh, I think in the back, I, I titled that essay, uh, that time when a future prime minister of Canada hired a future leader of the FLQ. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. Pierre Trudeau hired Pierre Vallière for his magazine, Cité Libre, because in the early 60s, Pierre Trudeau was sort of like moving away from being a magazine editor and, and slowly moving to politics. So he needed, he needed a guy to mind the shop, essentially. And that guy was one of the future leaders of the FLQ. That's a really interesting little <laughs> little foot, footnote to our narrative. The broad theme that I took away, it left me really curious, like, did Canada wildly overreact? And then, you know, we get to, like, declarations of martial law, and you touch on the Anglo exodus, and, you know, my connection to Montreal is uh, that that was the capital of Jewish life in Canada. In, right. Until these events scared, there was a, a lot of anti-Anglo and anti-Semitic feeling associated with this movement, and everybody just traveled down the 401, and that was it for a whole way of life and a whole community, really. Was that an overreaction? Was the federal government's response an overreaction? Like, as depicted, this is like an easily ignorable bunch of miscreants, yet... It's not without nuance because it, it's like seven years where you never know when a bomb's going to go off. So I, I don't know. I, I, I was left kind of scratching my head as to what to make of all this. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, that's the thing. Like there, there, there were, and I don't like. I do sort of pick and choose. I'm not. I'm not showing everything. There were actually a lot more bombs that went off. So I mean, that's the question. Like, what is an overreaction? I do think that you know this is getting towards the October crisis. I think that. Um, that probably was an overreaction, like looking at it in, in hindsight, the whole War Measures Act. One of the ministers said that there were like 3,000 terrorists involved. And, and as I said, there were maybe a couple of dozen at most. Uh -huh. I think in many levels, it was an overreaction. As to what could have been done, it's hard. It really is hard to say. I don't know. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day -day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, 
and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. When I think about what D&Q is, there's so many different artists that have been published, and it's just like, you know, decades now of really interesting work. But there is a commonality in what, like, we could generalize the contribution. I think broadly we're talking about nonfiction comics, you know, you published a lot of different things, but for a while it was known for autobiographical comics, mm-hmm, picking mm-hmm. up something that Robert Crumb started, but then with Chester Brown and, and Joe Matt and Seth, it was like, okay, these guys are specializing in, and, and then Julie Doucette, it's like, this is like diary comics and very specific stories of people just revealing their masturbation habits and, you know, like really, really granular navel gazing, but like finding interesting material in, in self-exploration. Sure. Yeah. And it comes full circle too. Like when you, you know, 30 years later, when you get to someone like um, Kate Beaton, uh, who I think was on your show last year for her book, Ducks, which is also autobiographical, yeah, um, but dealing with some like really major issues. And I mean, that was an, an amazing book. And this, this evolution, Evolution from autobiography nonfiction to journalistic nonfiction, mm-hmm. I think kind of contributing to something that Mouse really pioneered. And uh, I, I find comics journalism interesting because, of course, everything you see on the page, you know, there's no photography. There's no firsthand documentation. That, like it's, it's somebody just decided how to draw this. And you play with it. I don't know. Do you consider what you're doing journalism? Because, like, there's elements that you made up and yet you are triangulating the truth. You're like, here's how the mayor remembers this and right. it conflicts with how the actual revolutionary mm-hmm. remembers it and it conflicts with how the cop remembers it. Are those based on interview? Like, wh- Chris, where are you getting this stuff? What I sort of try to do, like having the different narrators, I sort of try to present them as if they might be unreliable narrators to some degree, like where there is some degree of difference in between how people remember things. In the end, though, if people go back to the end notes at the end of the book, They'll see that I'm, I'm actually not making it up. It tends to be like with Drapeau, the mayor of Montreal. His accounts are actually, you know, verified. But the way I depict him is he sort of tends to overly exaggerate things, right? So he'll say, uh, oh, there was a bomb that went off and it destroyed all of Drummond Street. And then the other guy will 
will say, well, actually, it was a Molotov cocktail and it didn't even get lit up, you know, so things like that. So it's kind of like if, you know, if an accident happens and you've got like 10 people as witnesses, they'll be able to describe the car accident. But there might be some, you know, somebody might be exaggerating here and there, basically stick with the truth, but suggest that, that there might be some people who are just, you know, exaggerating a little bit here and there. Right. You sort of have these characterizations of some people wanting to minimize and some people wanting to maximize. But Mm -hmm. in terms of what happened on what date and who got hurt, we can trust that this is an accurate document. Yeah, that's it. I didn't I wanted to make sure that there was no degree of uh, fake news or anything like that. I, I, I really wanted to make sure. I mean, especially because so much of this history was was forgotten, overlooked. I wanted to make sure that what I was presenting was reliable Mm -hmm. because I think a lot of people are going to be learning about it for the first time. Is this as surprising to your English readership as it is to your French readership? Like this stuff might be more examined and more understood in Quebec. You know, it's a little bit more known in French Quebec, but for the most part, a lot of what I discuss here in the book just even based on like French Quebecois people that I've spoken with, it's still also an unknown history. It's just like people are just flabbergasted that it hasn't been covered more to this extent. It's such an emotional issue and there's such a vibrant media discourse in Quebec. How is your book being received or do we not know yet? We do not know yet. It's still about two to three weeks away from the the publication date as of this recording. I have to admit, and just to be upfront, I, I am a bit nervous because the other angle here is that I'm an Anglophone. Yeah. Even though I live here, I live in Montreal almost all my life. Uh, I was born here. But that's a, you know, could be a touchy subject. I'm an Anglophone taking on a a very, um, you know, important issue in Quebec politics. A very emotional, personal issue to a lot of people. Yes. And and that's that's another reason why I wanted to really make sure I got this right and have a lot of, you know, sources backing this up because I... I think probably, I think it'll be received fine, but I mean, there's going to be probably at least a handful of people who who might take exception. You might get eaten alive. Are you are you fluent? <laughs> Can you hold your own? Are you going to be on tout le monde Are you? You know, I've been trying to improve my French a lot in the last year. And while it has gotten better, I still have this just lousy Anglophone accent. I'm ashamed of like... I just can't believe it. And, and, and so, but I'm going to be talking in French, right? Like at events and, and media and things like that. So I hope this, uh, <laughs> I hope it goes well. What is the mood these days? And you depict it. It's kind of like a little poetic coda. Though we're talking about a few dozen people at the height of it, the graffiti FLQ on a building meant something and uh, was galvanizing and was, uh, you know, it was an emotional thing and a sign of rebellion I've kind of lost track of where it's at now. How do people regard this group? Are they are they thought of as just some fringe weirdos or are are they still hailed as heroes? It's really hard to say. I mean, it's it's so long ago now that, you know, we're talking about at least 2 to 3 generations ago now that there might be some degree of nostalgia. But again, there's so much information that has been missing. And it gets complicated, too, because, because here you have this group that were fighting for things were really bad for, for French Canadians, for French Quebecois people at that time. Unquestionably, yeah. Like, in theory, <laughs> what their goals were good, but their, the means were, were 
horrible, like using bombs and violence. Mm-hmm. And the uh, incompetence of that is really well documented in this, that this was so hapless and amateurish. Absolutely, yeah. While we're chatting, I just, uh, I wanted to express my condolences to you. I mean, I, I like I said, I... Um, I grew up reading comics that you published. Peep Show was a comic I enjoyed from uh, Joe Matt. And uh, just this week, I learned that he's died. Yes. I met him once. Like, I was a co-op student at a radio station in Toronto called Q107 when I was 16. Uh-huh. And they had a sister station, AM640, which at the time had, like, a pop music format. And they had a um, talk show for teenagers, Okay. Follow me here for a minute. I'm going to take you on a little ride. So Shelly Klink was the host of their talk show for teens and tweens, but there were no young people in the office except for me. So she sort of gravitated towards me to get fodder. I was the wrong teenager. Like I wasn't into things that many other teenagers were into, but she saw me reading Peep Show. Oh, that's pretty funny. And so she said, uh, <laughs> she said, oh, what's that? Is this what the kids are into? I'm like, I don't know, but it's by a guy in Toronto. And so she said, oh, <laughs> and I, I actually found myself kind of producing the segment. She said, can you get me in touch with this cartoonist? And so I, I was happy to like, oh, this is cool. Uh, Cause I was just like working kind of in the mailroom. And so I ended up reaching out to Joe Matt and he brought along Seth <laughs> and the two of them took the TTC, <laughs> you know, they were late uh, and, and uh, they were really mad at me that, that uh, these guys were late and I got them into studio. And I don't think she'd even read the thing. And she just saw that there was like a cover with lots of lots of hot ladies drawn on the cover. I think I remember that issue. Uh-huh. And she asks Joe, like, what's this comic about? This isn't Superman. Uh, <laughs> this is pretty spicy. Who are all these sexy ladies in your comic? And Joe kind of stared at his sweater and said, well, they're just sort of like from the pornography that I masturbate to. <laughs> Wait, so and she <laughs> shut it. She shut it down, man. That that was the first okay. and last Wait. segment that I had any. <laughs> Were you fired after this? <laughs> I wasn't really paid anything. Okay. I was doing this for high okay. school credit. Uh, I was not welcome to to represent the youth after that <laughs> incident. But I hung out with them because there was a pool table at the radio station, and they just like loitered and played pool. Uh, and I thought they were the coolest guys I'd ever met. And Joe was uh, was really generous, uh, talking with me about cartooning and comics. And um, he was one of a kind. Like you know, a, a page of Joe Matt comics was not like anybody else's. And uh, mm -hmm, absolutely, I wish, he, I wish he'd made more of them. You know, but uh, but I was I was I was sad. I'm I'm I, I, I'm sorry for your loss. I'm sorry that Joe's gone. Yeah, no, no. It was like it was a real shocker for a lot of people. I mean, when someone dies at that age, you know, sixty, it's relatively relatively young. I mean, that's um. You know, he was living in the States. He's not, he couldn't, he probably didn't see a doctor since he was a teenager, right? He's not going to spend, what it, how much does it cost to see a doctor? I don't know, a couple hundred dollars in the States, uh, maybe more, maybe a lot more than that for a checkup. But he was not, oh my yeah. God. That's tragic. If that's a factor in this, that's appalling. And then before that, when he lived in Canada, he was an illegal alien. So he couldn't see a doctor. So, which means that he hasn't seen a doctor probably since his parents sent him when he was a kid. Not unrelated, but like, w w what is it about comics and weirdos? <laughs> why, why? 
<laughs> Why does the medium attract such a bunch of weirdos? Um, you know, it might be a way of over, overcompensating, like for people who are a little bit um, uh, socially inept. That's a, sort of like a, a way to, um, to overcompensate. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed the book, Chris. Uh, it's uh, beautifully drawn and well told and uh, really appreciate you chatting with, with me about it today. Okay, thank you so much, Jesse. That's your Canada Land podcast. I would like you to think about becoming a supporter. I'd like you to become a supporter. We rely on listeners becoming supporters. We rely on people actually paying for journalism. Um, when you become a supporter, we shower you with perks and appreciation and things and love. You'll get premium access to all of our shows ad-free. You'll get early releases and bonus content, our exclusive newsletter, discounts on our merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. But we know why people become supporters. It's not for that stuff. It's because people want to help. They want to be a part of the solution to this dreadful journalism crisis that our country is in. People want to keep our work free and accessible to everybody. Come do that. Join us now. Click on the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read every email you send. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadaland.com. Our senior producer is Bruce Thorson. Additional production and editing from Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Poglese. I'm your host, Jesse Brown. Our theme music is by so-called syndications handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. You can listen to Canada Land ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to and so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.